Looking through 1 Samuel, we're up to chapter 26, um, and we're going to open up in prayer and ask God that he would speak to us through his word this morning. Heavenly Father, you are good. All of your word is good and for our benefit to help us understand and respond to you rightly, to help recognise who we are rightly, that we might bring our brokenness and our sin before you, and Lord, that we might live honourably before our Lord and King and how we deal with those who are around us. We pray that your Spirit might help us to see the wonderful things that you have declared to us in your word, you would help me to speak clearly. You would keep me from saying things that are false. And Lord, that you would be building up your people and calling a people to yourself through your word this morning. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you were handing in a Bible to your high school English teacher and say, this is my work, apart from the plagiarism issue, um, I'd imagine what sort of feedback you would get from an English teacher on your Bible. Now, I'd imagine they'd get to a part where they're like, some of these sentences are ridiculously long. Paul, in first, sorry, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, is one sentence. In our English Bibles, that's 246 words. Now, a couple of times a year, I write an article for the Chronicle, and I only get 200 words that I'm allowed to do, and Paul knocks that out over the limit in one sentence. Or there might be questions of, you're padding this out a bit. There's, there's repetition between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke in particular. There's a lot of common material between them. Then, even in the same books, you think there's a lot of scenarios and situations that almost seem the same but a little bit different. Like in your gospel accounts, you've got the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. Or in the case of 1 Samuel, what you've just heard read might have sounded vaguely similar to what we saw a couple of weeks ago in chapter 24. Back in chapter 24, Saul was pursuing David. David had opportunity to strike Saul and do something about it, to bring his pursuit of David to an end. But he said, I will not, because he's the Lord's anointed. He speaks to Saul. Saul apologises, says, I've got it all wrong. And you think, it's a pretty similar scenario today. Remember one of the lecturers I had at His Hill Bible School in Comfort, Texas, in America? Matt Cole used to always say, repetition equals emphasis. Repetition equals emphasis. This morning's not the same old, same old. It's not chapter 24 just retold with the slightly different details. There is some commonality because the message that's been communicated is important for us to know. It tells us something about David the Lord's anointed, the king who foreshadows the final and perfect anointed Messiah Christ, Jesus, a nature of what he is like and what his kingdom is like. A kingdom which you and I, if we turn to him in faith, belong to. Now, if you've missed a number of weeks or you're visiting this morning, just to give you a little bit of a backstory. Saul was the first ever king in Israel. The people came to Samuel and asked for him to give them a king. He wasn't king, but God says, give them what they're after. They get a king, and his name was Saul. Initially, things started out pretty well. 
But over time we saw that Saul was power hungry. He wanted to be the one who called the shots. He wanted to be the ultimate authority. He saw himself as the one and only king. Whereas God's plan was always that the kings on this earth would be representatives of God's rule over the earth. That God would be the one who was honoured in the process. And eventually come chapter 15, Samuel says to Saul, you have been rejected by God as king. Your kingdom has been taken from you and is being given to a neighbour who is better than you. The following chapter we see in chapter 16, Samuel anoints David. It's not specifically told that he will become king, but by the time we're up to it now in 1 Samuel, everyone else has already reached that conclusion of why David was being anointed, that he is the next king in line for the nation of Israel. But in the previous event in chapter 24 which had many similarities to what we're looking at in chapter 26, where David had the opportunity in the cave of Engedi. This was Saul's response after David refused to lay his hand against the Lord's anointed. Saul said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. And you could think, ah, finally, they're buddies again. It's all peace and and happiness again. But we all know in life, People fail us on a regular basis. Even people who sincerely apologise for what they have done. And Saul is no exception to that. As we work our way through chapter 26, we ask the question of who can be guiltless in verses 1 to 12. The call to keep watch in verses 13 to 16. What is precious to the Lord in 17 to 25. And wrapping up with thoughts of a kingdom of righteousness and faithfulness. Even the setting is very familiar territory. Back in chapter 23, it is the exact same location. The hill of Hakala was that place where Saul and his men were enclosing in on David, just about to come upon the location where David was, until a messenger came along to inform Saul that the Philistines were attacking the Israelites and Saul disbanded his search of David. Same again, the report comes to Saul from the same group of people. It's the Ziphites. Now it's not so much that they're choosing sides one way or the other. They have just seen through the way things have panned out, it is beneficial to help Saul out. It is beneficial not to be seen in any way to be supporting David. We already saw what happened with the priests of Nob when he thought that he was, they were supporting David. Saul says, kill them all. So you can see why they want to make sure they stay in Saul's good books. Now despite Saul's previous words where he's declared David to be innocent, that he's no threat at all to Saul, Saul does exactly what he's done every other time. He hears where David is, grabs 3,000 elite men to go with him and he's on that pursuit once again of David. 
Now, David sees the approach of 3,000, which probably isn't a hard thing to do. It's kind of difficult to sneak up in a group of 3,000, I would imagine. So he sends out some spies who confirm in verse 4 the worst fears. Yep, no surprises here. Saul again with a whole pile of troops hoping to capture David. David goes and has a little bit cloak of squiz himself and he can see that Saul is indeed there, the king. Abner, the commander of the army, is there by his side. One can only presume that either David's got exceptional eyesight or I think more likely because Saul would have his spear by his side. That was a very clear sign from a distance visually that it was indeed Saul who had come into his area. So what would you do? You've got Saul and 300 elite troops and you've got a small number of guys with you. What does David do? He asks two men, Ahimelech, the Hittite, not Ahimelech, the priest who's formerly had his head chopped off, and his nephew Abishai, who will come with me into the camp of Saul? Does that sound like an attractive offer? Who will come with me as a party of two people into the camp of Saul the psychopath and his 3,000 elite troops? Abishai's pretty keen. He puts his hands up. He knows the odds are the same as you and I do. 3,000 to 2. Now, Abishai is not too different to the men that David had around him in the cave. Remember what happened in the cave when Saul came into the cave to cover his feet or relieve himself? They said, the Lord God has given Saul into your hands. That's the way Abishai sees it. But I think Abishai kind of recalls the previous event where David had said, I'm not going to lay my hand against the Lord's anointed. So he doesn't encourage David to do something about it. He says, the Lord has given Saul into your hands. I will take his spear and pin him to the ground. I'm going to do it so good I'm not going to even need a second crack at it. He's going to be gone in one hit. Nothing's changed. Saul is still the Lord's anointed king. Not only did David learn that in the cave, but in between in chapter 25 he's learnt through his experiences with Abigail that it's not David's role to save with his own hand. So in light of these things, David responds, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Or on this day he'll come to die, or he'll go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should lay out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is in his head, at his head, not in his head, that's a very different scenario. Take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. It's like, we'll take it, but we will not touch the Lord's anointed. God will judge Saul. God will judge him his way in his timing. But for David, this wasn't just purely a matter of, he's the king. This was a matter of faithfulness. Faithfulness to the ultimate king who had set Saul into that position. But it was also a position of righteousness. He asked the question, who could oppose the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? He's asking in such a way, it's impossible. You cannot oppose something God has put in place and be without guilt. 
And if you think, the word anointed is mentioned many times. It's the same Hebrew word that we translate as Messiah or the Greek word that we translate as Christ. Both of these foreshadowing the coming of a perfect and future one in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if it's spoken of to oppose this imperfect anointed as being you are without doubt guilty if you oppose this one, how much more are we guilty if we oppose the final and perfect king, the Lord's anointed, the Lord Jesus Christ? And it gives us to ask the question, how have we responded to the Lord's anointed, Jesus? In reality, there is only two options. Either you have honoured him and you have turned to him, or you have not. Or in the words of Yoda, there's do or do not, there is no try. That wasn't in the notes and there's good reason for that. (laughs) Now often someone who hasn't yet trusted in Jesus might think, I don't oppose Jesus. I'm not for him, but I don't certainly don't oppose him. Remember this very same King Jesus spoke in these words. He said, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. The same Lord, the same Christ, announces only six verses after that to say that, and everyone must give an account before him. As does also the author of Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 12. Now, David doesn't take Saul's life. He does take kids. What does he take? Because Samuel forgot to ask you for the answer after the reading. He does take the water bottle and a spear. You think, how's that possible? 3,000 men protecting the king. Two guys somehow just sneak in go right next to the king, take his spear that's next to his head and a water bottle, and nobody notices. Verse 12 tells you that answer, because the Lord had put them all in a deep sleep. The Lord had caused them to be in a deep sleep. They had no idea what had taken place. Not too dissimilar to when the Lord put Adam in a deep sleep and formed Eve out of Adam. Nobody was able to keep watch. Now, when David takes the spear and the water jug and gets to a safe distance, he calls to Abner, the king of all, the commander of all of the army. I mean, this guy is the, the top dog from a military perspective. And David, who's the one who they're coming out to get, is taunting him. It's like, can you hear me? Why don't you answer me, Abner? Are you a man? You would love that one. I just prop him up a little bit. Who else is like you? I'm sure at that point Abner's like, yeah, I'm the man. He says, but why did you not protect your king? That'd be a massive accusation for him to hear. There's the commander of the army. If he hasn't protected the king, that's a serious issue. Yet David says one has entered the camp to kill Saul so that one presumably that Abishai, he's the one who's keen to do the job, totally undetected. Put it in a different scenario. Imagine if someone snuck into the White House, got into the office with Donald Trump, 
Do you think that Donald Trump's head of security would have a job the next day? I don't think so. And much to our surprise, he doesn't get the sack. Abner continues in this role. We don't know what consequences there were. If there were some, I'd imagine Saul wouldn't have been too impressed. David says, you deserve to die. This was the guy entrusted with protecting the Lord's anointed king and he'd failed. So David can say, as the Lord lives, you deserve to die. Righteousness and faithfulness demanded that he would die. If David was faithful and righteous towards Saul in his conduct, Abner was completely the opposite towards Saul. Now we've got to wonder for each of ourselves. We live in an age where the perfect and final Lord's anointed has come in Jesus Christ. He's reigning now. Do we honour him? He is perfect in righteousness and faithfulness. And his righteousness and faithfulness demands that he judges, that he acts against those who dishonour him. He calls all to come to him in repentance and faith. Even Christians are told, watch out. Not because they will lose their faith, but Peter says because Satan roars around like a prowling lion seeking who he may devour. The New Testament authors remind us constantly, keep watch, keep watch. But just because the Lord's perfect righteousness demands that he would judge, it doesn't mean that it's his desire to punish. We see expressed in Ezekiel 33, 11, the Lord says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? That's the heart of our God. His righteousness, his perfection demands that he judge all people who do not honour him. But it's not his ultimate desire to judge them. It's his ultimate desire is that they would turn to him in repentance and faith. All people are precious, created in the image of God, and he wants them to enjoy the blessings of entering into his kingdom. Now, much like 1 Samuel chapter 24, as Saul realises what's taken place around him, he's overwhelmed. He says, David, my son, no more this term where he tries to put him down of who is this son of Jesse, David, my son. Now, sure, David was Saul's son-in-law there for a little while, at least until Saul took his daughter away from David and gave him to someone else back in chapter 25. I don't think he's the ultimate father-in-law to have, but David would be a pretty handy son-in-law to have. After all the ways in which Saul had mistreated David, David has done nothing but honour and respect him as king at all times. He keeps presuming the best of Saul, even though Saul constantly is in pursuit of his life. Back in chapter 24, he's like, who has told you 
that, that I am seeking your harm. He doesn't say, Saul, you're an idiot, I'm not seeking your harm. He says, who told you that? He, he kind of presumes that maybe someone has misled him. In this chapter, chapter 26, he puts forward two options. Neither of them are, Saul, you're an idiot. It's, if, has the Lord put me into your hand? Is it because of some sin that I've done that God is judging me through your actions? If so, may there be an offering that I can offer for my sin. Or the other option, he says, what if there's men who have told you to do this? May they be cursed by God. But as far as we can tell, the only person who has told Saul that David is a threat and he should be pursued is Saul himself and his own desires. To use the language of James 1.14, he's been tempted and lured and driven by his own desires leading him to sin. But thankfully, in a sober moment, Saul accepts full responsibility in verse 21. He says, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm because your life was, my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. Now I'm going to give him the benefit of doubt and presume that he's actually sincere. He means it. But if you were hearing it, you'd be very quick to think, I've heard this all before, Saul. But it is the first time that David is invited to return and serve Saul in that capacity. Not an offer that he takes up. Look at verse 25. Saul goes back home. David goes his own ways. This is actually the last dialogue between Saul and David that we have in the Bible. Now, we've all known people like Saul. People repeat offenders who continue to hurt you over and over and over again. They apologise and they sound so sincere with tears running down their face. But take comfort from the lesson of David. Forgiveness does not require that he put himself back in that same situation again. That's not the key point of the passage. Um, It's a significant point, not a key point. Uh, So if that's something you want to talk about in more detail, happy to chat at any time. But David is willing to return the spear and the water jug. But notice he's not saying, oh, I'll come bring it to you. He's still smart enough to realise, hang on, you bring a little boy over here and he can take it. I don't want to be in near proximity to Saul and that spear that he's already piffed at me a couple of times already. In verses 23 to 25 are the final exchange of words between David and Saul. And quite notable in their differences. David's language is all centred around God and who God is and what God's doing. Whereas Saul, on the other hand, is a little bit more just polite and respectful. David's words are worth remembering. He says, The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today... And I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. May he deliver me out of all tribulation. Now you could preach a whole sermon on those two verses, but you'll be relieved to know I'm not going to. David says, The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. This anointed future King David knows what the true, the Lord King is like. 
He's a king of righteousness and faithfulness. And God's kings are his co-regent, representing his reign and rule on this earth, representing his values. Therefore, the Lord rewards those who display his character, who magnify his character where he is honoured and glorified. But I like verse 24. It says, As Saul's life was precious, may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. David's not kidding himself as thinking that he's perfect. He knows all of his failings. But his ultimate desire is that he would be precious in the sight of the Lord despite all of his failings, despite all of his faults. And I want to encourage all of you who have come to Jesus with all your faults, all your failings, if you have trust in him, you are precious in his sight. Or to use the words of Jesus himself, you are loved by God the Father just as he has loved God the Son, Jesus. Saul's response, kind of generic, May you be blessed, may you succeed in everything you do. Not quite as detailed as back in chapter 24 when he says, you surely will be king and your kingdom will will continue. Last week we saw the words of Abigail where she was the first to foresee that David would be given a sure house that is an everlasting kingdom. The plan of the Lord will not be thwarted. And we live in a time in history where that that promise, that fulfilment, that everlasting kingdom has been established through Jesus Christ, who, according to Peter, was established through his death, resurrection, ascension to the right hand of the Lord, where he is proclaimed both Lord and Christ in Acts chapter 2. It's a kingdom of righteousness and faithfulness. Now, that's nothing to be surprised. This king, Jesus, is described as the righteous one. Acts 3.14 and 22.14. He's also described as the one who is faithful. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 and Hebrews 2.17. David's actions weren't always righteous and faithful. His response to Saul on this occasion was, but you flip over a few pages, 2 Samuel chapter 11, you'll see a very different side of, of David. A man who has an affair with a married woman and then arranges for her husband to be sent into war so that he would die. He's not a perfect anointed by any sense. That doesn't mean we should rule him out. The fact that the anointed who is spoken of, David, is imperfect, leaves us longing for one who is better, who is perfect that one who has come the lord jesus christ god's one and only son who at the very beginning of his ministry started with these words same as john the baptist repent for the kingdom of god is at hand in other words the necessary preparation to enter into that kingdom is repentance and faith turning from dishonouring God, turning from just doing whatever I please, that I'm the ultimate ruler, turning to him in faith, recognising he is the king, 
the one to whom we belong, the one whom we serve with all of our heart, from self to Christ. And all who believed in him, he gave the right to be called children of God, being plucked out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of his beloved son, a kingdom of righteousness and faithfulness. But everyone who serves the righteous and faithful king is called to serve in a manner that reflects him and brings him glory and honour. We expect to live lives of righteousness and faithfulness. They're kingdom values after all. Paul says as people are squabbling over different food things, he says, well, the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. It's about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Not just that we have been given the righteousness of Christ, which we have, but that we actively pursue and seek to grow in righteousness and holiness for the glory of God. Faithfulness isn't one of the optional extras either. In fact, when you see the way in which Paul addresses the church in Ephesus and Colossae, he speaks to them as the faithful in Christ. It is your identity. If you are in Christ, you are called to be the faithful. Those who are called into God's kingdom are called into his kingdom of faithfulness and righteousness to declare his glorious character, his glorious deeds, that we might walk in righteousness and faithfulness for his glory to the king who sits on the throne forever. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are perfect in all that you are, not just your righteousness and your faithfulness. We thank you that your righteousness requires that we be punished because we haven't honoured you in the way in which you are worthy to be honoured as the true king over all creation. But your righteousness also demands that something be done about that. And we thank you that Jesus came into this world for the express purpose of bearing upon himself and his body the punishment that was due to us for our failing to honour you as you are worthy of being honoured. Thank you that through faith, repentance and faith in him, we receive his righteousness upon which we can stand before you in confidence knowing that we stand upon a righteousness that is not our own. But Lord, we pray that we would be a people who grow and pursue righteousness and holiness, who grow in faithfulness, that we would faithfully serve you no matter what comes our way, that we would declare you as king worthy of all honour. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.